This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. We're going to try to solve a COVID mystery today. Why have developing countries in Africa and Asia escaped the worst of the virus? The developed world often never has to worry about the many deadly diseases that plague some of those countries. But the pandemic has turned things upside down. COVID hitting the U.S. and other Western countries much worse, killing, of course, a lot of people. There's another mystery of sorts we'll get into. Some people who get a mild case of the virus end up with long-term problems. And a university in California has a way to try and keep some students from going places for spring break. Let's try to solve this COVID mystery of why poorer countries in Africa and Asia seem to be doing better. Dr. Prabhat Jha is an epidemiologist and health economist at the University of Toronto. He's the founding director of the Center for Global Health Research. Doctor, is it possible the reporting system isn't as good in poorer countries as it is elsewhere? It varies by country. So if you look, let's say in India, in the big cities of India, they captured deaths uh, a little slower than deaths are captured here, but the reporting system has been quite good. That's not true in rural India where still most deaths occur. But what's been the case with COVID is most of the new COVID cases have been reported in urban areas. And sure enough, in let's say in Delhi or in Bombay, the death rates from COVID uh, are substantially lower than they have been here. Same with hospitalizations, uh, much lower than here. But that's a bit of a paradox because the infection is quite widespread. So if you do surveys like we've done, uh, you find that perhaps 40 to 50% of the people in the big cities of India have been already infected, but have very low death rates. So this is the paradox. Lots of infections, not many deaths. So take us through theories that you or others have as to what exactly is going on. If just the systems of counting, you know, don't make up for, for all of this. Yeah. So this is great. I mean, for I'm not to have uh, too much fun with uh, lots of misery here, but uh, for an epidemiologist, this is a great whodunit that we get to look into. So we think there's a few things going on. So first of all, you when you have a younger population, uh, like in, uh, in India, then younger populations we know are more uh, likely to get infected but not get sick. So that's part of the explanation. Um, the other thing that might be going on is there's widespread intergenerational transmission occurring in uh, in Indian households because there's no there's not many nursing homes so basically the elder people live with the younger so you get kind of infection right across the age groups now you might think well how's that different from a central part of Los Angeles let's say uh, particularly in the in the Hispanic community you'll have lots of people living together um, uh, in a home but Los Angeles had had very high death rates in contrast to, let's say, Bombay. And we think that might be related to uh, two particular features. One is much of the infections in India appear to be asymptomatic. So unlike here, where people get symptoms and then you transmit, a lot of the infections appear without symptoms. Now, why could that be? Well, it, uh, that's important because if you've got an asymptomatic infection, it probably means you're less likely to infect others, and you're uh, less likely to become seriously sick. 
So I think that's been reasonably well shown kind of in various settings. So why is the symptomatic infections uh, widespread? Well, there's some suggestions that the what's called nonspecific effects, meaning um, having immunity from having a bunch of vaccines that are widely distributed or infections. So just think of the classic stuff like measles or polio or a uh, virus uh, that uh, or a vaccine that's given at, at uh, birth to prevent tuberculosis. If they're widely used, they might lead to a nonspecific boost in your immunity, which then means the infection that you would pick up the SARS coronavirus infection is more likely mild and less likely to be transmitted, but it's still very widespread because everyone's living in the household. Is there? So, but, but let me ask yeah. something. I mean, is, is there another possibility too, which is that? Because uh, one of the things that, that I was thinking about when I first read about this is that, uh, as you know, uh, there seems to be a link, for example, between obesity. Uh, as a comorbidity, right, and and COVID, and I think there's very little question that in in the industrialized Western countries, the obesity rates tend to be significantly higher, right, than in places like India and many countries in Africa. Uh, is that a possibility? That certainly would be, and uh, you're you're absolutely right. The uh, the adult and childhood obesity rates in the U.S. are just really really high, and in the most affected communities. Uh, such as the Hispanic community, they're particularly high. So now in India, you have a leaner body mass uh, overall, but uh, there's lots of overweight Indians uh, walking around in the urban areas. So it might be that one thing pushes it up, which is obesity, but another thing, which is background levels of immunity, levels of infection, uh, push it down. So this is the great whodunit that you know we're trying to look into and figure out what's going on. It's really important to understand because it means it could help identify in high-income countries who are the populations that are really at high risk, who might be at lower risk. And although the goal is to vaccinate everyone, which is sensible, this kind of information in the future gives you a way of being more precise, saying, well, let's put, let's say, obese young people who've not had uh, previous measles vaccine or not a recent measles vaccine right at the front of the queue. So I think all of these things are um, are suggestive of ways that we can use the data to uh, try to figure out how to curb the epidemic. Hmm. Dr. Prabhat Jha, epidemiologist, health economist, University of Toronto. Doctor, thanks. You might think people dealing with long-haul COVID suffered really nasty infections when they got the virus, but it turns out there is research that shows some people suffering from long-term symptoms actually had a mild infection with little to no initial symptoms. Dr. Timothy Henrich, Associate Professor of Medicine, UC San Francisco, his lab researching the COVID long haulers. Doctor, so these people, they didn't need to go to the hospital. It wasn't that bad, but still they developed some symptoms later or they kept on going. Well, that's right. And, th and thank you for, for asking this question. I think it's important that uh, we are certainly seeing individuals and patients that despite not having to go to the hospital and having relatively mild symptoms can actually have persistent symptoms that can last eight or nine months uh, at least uh, since the onset of their acute infection. Now, is it also the, the case that there are some people who may be, as Mike uh, mentioned in the lead-in, asymptomatic, so they would not even have known that they had covid 
and yet months later come down with sort of uh, unexplained symptoms? Well, it's certainly possible. I, you know, there's certainly folks that have uh, quite mild uh, initial symptoms. So perhaps they felt run down or felt fatigued. Uh, that may have been their only initial presenting symptoms of COVID-19. And, and if those symptoms persist, it, it is possible that someone that had very, very mild symptoms uh, could they, they could persist over time. Whether those could get worse over time is not clear, uh, but it's certainly possible that those with mild symptoms could continue to have those mild symptoms, even if they didn't know uh, that they were initially from uh, an acute COVID-19 or SARS-CoV-2 infection. Is it always the same stuff that you had? Like, is it always a shortness of breath or some chest pain or some brain fog? Or could it be maybe that was uh, kind of you, you had a weird week, right? But then now it's been months and you've still got, you know, back pain or gastro problems or your heart rate's doing crazy things? Because these are also all long haulers sim symptoms, at least as reported by the long haulers. No, it's certainly possible. Um, again, I think that, that, that it's interesting to note that folks can have these symptoms even without COVID-19. Uh, so it's very important when we do research studies to study these questions that we understand and know that, that people had COVID-19 infection. So for example, we look at antibody uh, positivity. Does someone does not have antibodies or did not have a PCR test or other uh, nasal swab test that was positive for COVID, it can be difficult to know if the symptoms that they're having are directly related. But I can tell you that within the studies where we, we definitively know that, that, that people have been exposed to COVID or have been infected with COVID-19 in the past, that certainly that, that you know, eight to nine to 10% of those uh, patients can actually have symptoms for two, or month, uh, two months or more over time. So I, I guess one of the, the, the real problematic things here is, uh, you know, younger people, as we know, tend to, if anyone is going to get asymptomatic COVID, it's more likely, right, to be a younger person. Uh, so then that does raise the disturbing question, could somebody who's 20, 25, you know, kind of skate through a, a asymptomatic or, or such a mild case that they don't even suspect they have COVID and then come down, you know, and get slapped hard three, four months later? So that, that we don't know. Uh, and I, I actually don't know uh, through various research studies if, if that has been definitively proven or not. Uh, usually what we're seeing is that, that folks have symptoms at the onset of their illness and that those symptoms continue. So they are new because of COVID-19, uh, but most of the time they develop within the time of acute infection. That said, uh, people with more severe symptoms actually have a higher chance of developing persistent symptoms uh, for exactly that reason. Theories as to why this happens? I mean, we said, you know, the virus should have left the body by now, but maybe it didn't. Maybe there's some pocket of it somewhere. I don't even know if it works like that. Or your immune system went so haywire that it's just taking this long, six months, to kind of get back to normal. I mean, this is a great question, and I think we would all love to know the answer to this. Uh, you know, it's certainly possible that there is a certain amount of in certain tissues, maybe in the gastrointestinal tract and the intestine, uh, but we don't know. It's, it's also very likely that, that the uh, virus had an initial uh, insult to the body that set off inflammation or potentially uh, the immune system that's dis dysregulated and is attacking itself, for example, is also a possibility. Or there could be tissue damage because of that initial viral infection uh, that persists over time. And that may be one reason why we see a lot of uh, patients develop uh, changes in taste or smell uh, that develop during acute symptoms, but then last for, for weeks to months thereafter. Uh, but we all love to know what the, what the potential causes. I have a feeling it's multifactorial, that there are different causes for different clusters or types of symptoms that we're seeing with, with uh, these long haulers.
Do you suspect, though, as as immunization becomes more widespread and presumably, hopefully by the fall, younger people will also qualify to be vaccinated, that we should see this particular issue of long haulers dramatically decline? Well, we certainly hope so. Uh, This is a really, really hot issue right now. We we just don't know. We're all hoping that uh, vaccination will not only decrease the severity of symptoms, uh, the overall infection rates of, of SARS-CoV-2, uh, but may also impact uh, long, long haul or, or persistent symptoms that last for weeks to months after infection. So it's certainly possible by reducing the initial severity that we may be able to damp down and prevent uh, either the duration or the, uh, the uh, the duration of these of these symptoms over time, but we just don't know. And I think we need to study uh, in, in very well-controlled studies what impact vaccination does have on, on post-COVID symptoms. Dr. Timothy Henrich, she's working on it, Associate Professor of Medicine, UCSF's Division of Experimental Medicine. It's got the lab undertaking research on COVID long haulers. Coming up after this short break, a college student dilemma, party and spend money or stay home and make money. We're now in the spring break phase of college. Students are traveling to hot spots in Arizona and Florida for a week of partying. Of course, that means there's an increased chance of spreading the virus. UC Davis says uh, don't bring the virus back here. So if you stay in the dorms, 75 bucks. Maybe a good deal. With us, Kyle Kruger, junior and president of the Associated Students, uh, UC Davis. Emily Barniange, junior and vice president of the Associated Students. It's a student government. So, Kyle, would you take the money or is it you know not enough? Good question. Um, you know, I had to, I'm actually in Southern California and I've been here for a bit um, at, at home, just had to travel for, for family reasons. And so it won't, it won't apply to me necessarily. Um, but uh, if I was there, it, I certainly would take it. It's, it's, uh, it's free money um, and it's, uh, it's, it's a nice program. So, yeah. Emily. What about you? And is this like 75 because, you know, the way this is being talked about is $75 to stay there or is it like $75 because you're staying? Here's the thank you. I don't know if 75 is enough to keep me in my place. Right. I don't think it's a the intention is for it to turn heads. I think it's just a huge incentive for people or a plus if you are staying in the area. And for college students, 75 is a good amount of money just to live off for food. So it's it's definitely substantial. You know, Emily, if you, if you made me your agent, I bet you I can bargain up. <laughs> uh, how is this going over with students? I think the program itself has received a lot of just traction. This is the second time that they, they did a similar program last year in October for Halloween grants. And it's been pretty successful. I mean, Davis has consistently had the lowest positivity rate in relation to the greater community. So things, programs like this, just the continued innovation, it's it's doing a lot of good. Kyle, does everybody who says they're going to stay get it or do you have to prove you stayed? And is it like, I don't know, a check or is this a gift card down to Burgers and Brew or, or Village Pizza? If those are still open, and I hope they are. That's a good question. Um, you know, I'm not going to have all the details as, you know, it's the Healthy Davis Together running the program, but uh, but but from my understanding, it's, uh, you know, it can be used at select businesses and and there's a couple different uh, kind of programs within it, such as like home improvement. And I, I've heard a few students who are, are pretty excited about, um, pretty excited about like particular options for, for using the $75. So, um, and so for, for folks staying in Davis, um, I kind of, I agree with what, with what Emily said as well. I think that uh, there, there may be some folks like dedicated to traveling and they may not change their minds, but I think for folks on the fence, it's going to be 
substantial and you know if, if they could kind of go either way and then getting them to getting them to stay in davis so well you know guys uh, uh, mike actually just inadvertently gave something away because he went to uc davis this was before they put electricity in, i think uh <laughs> thank would, you thank you for that would 75 dollars have kept you there um yeah i would have stayed i mean well i was from sacramento too so it wasn't that far away right. but 75 dollars i mean yeah that yeah. that you could at least buy a lot of you know cheap beer, which is what we were drinking at that time. So that goes along. Or sandwiches. Let's say sandwiches. <laughs> I, I mean, how much of a concern, uh, guys, is COVID on the campus? Uh, because, you know, we do know that younger people tend not to get uh, very severe cases of COVID. And so sometimes their attitude is different than older folks like Mike. Sure. You know, I think it's still it's still certainly a concern, as it is everywhere. Um, like you said, younger people are, are generally less at risk, but there's certainly like immunocompromised folks and, you know, other folks who we really want to be, be sure um, to, to not spread COVID um, to, you know, to make sure that we're helping all of our fellow students. And so, um, and so it's certainly, it's certainly still a concern, but I think, you know, we've been doing a good job overall. Um, and, you know, we just, uh, with the vaccine kind of around the corner, got to uh, you know, got to keep doing what we're doing. So. Emily, how's it been going for you and your friends? And especially now, because it's been all the way through, right? I remember we're all doing the think back to March of last year thing right now. And we're all going, remember how naive we were thinking, oh, it'll be a few months and then we're out of this. I mean, did you think that maybe you'd miss a semester or two and then be back? You wouldn't be out the whole year plus? Exactly. It's It's been a brutal time. I mean, people's plans have have changed completely. I've had friends who just decided to take an entire year off. I My career plans changed. I was hoping to graduate in three and now I'm staying a fourth year because I'm doing my junior year from home. And I think just the general sentiment amongst college students is get, get your acts together because we want to be back in person as soon as possible. And so we're taking this very seriously because college is our time to experiment and it's being cut short for us. Do most families want uh, their kids to stay on, on campus? Kyle? That's a good question. I think it might be a little different for everyone. Um, there's, you know, I've actually heard from some friends who there's some push and pull where they want to stay on campus because it's safer and their, you know, their mothers want them to come home. And so, uh, so wait, so wait, so, so, so is, there, is, is there a situation where like, like the college says, we'll give you 75 bucks to stay and the, and the, the parents are going to double the price. <laughs> yeah. We'll give you 150 to come back. <laughs> I'll feed you. You know, I, I haven't heard of that specifically, but that's a funny thought. Um, yeah. I'll let Emily jump in too, if she has more thoughts. Yeah. Emily, go for it. Um, in terms of, you know, the push and pull. Do you go? Do you not go? What does mom want you to do? Because everybody misses each other if you have been going back to school. I mean, my mom's had me here for quite some time, so I, I'm sure she'd always want me to stay. Um, but for students who haven't seen their parents in a long time who are in Davis, I, I know that the, just the sentiment of missing them is very real, and it's, it's hard to be away from family at any point. So the $75 may may not be enough to keep them away. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Emily Barniant at uh, UC Davis, Kyle Kruger. They're both juniors. They're both with student government. Thanks, I wonder, guys. I, I wonder if, if the school, uh, if how many parents are actually paying the school $75 <laughs> to, keep to keep the, the kids. The yeah, here's, 70, yeah. here's 100 bucks. Keep them. Ah, Davis. Davis was the best. <laughs> Rode my bike everywhere. It's great. Ancient times. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Not as young as I used to be.
If you remember one of our episodes last week, we told you about the Brazil variant and how it's highly contagious and can possibly even reinfect people. It's been causing problems and spreading rapidly across Brazil since January. But a study in the New England Journal of Medicine finds the Pfizer vaccine appears to be highly effective against this variant. Now, that's raising hopes that the vaccination effort will help officially end this pandemic. The CDC says just 15 cases of this variant have been identified in nine states here in the U.S. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.